Welcome to the comic book character origin trail. I'm your guide, Comics Cowboy Troy. Join us as we journey down the various roads of inspiration to uncover the intersections of original sources and muses that help shape and form many classic comic book characters. Saturday up and enjoy the ride. Martial arts masterpiece. Sights and sounds like never before. Cheer the young warrior who alone takes on the evil warlords of martial arts. See one incredible onslaught after the other. Come prepared for the thrill of a lifetime. Welcome to the Comic Book Character Origin Trail, a new series detailing the roots of comic book characters that have had a significant impact on the history of comics, whether that be of a foundational nature such as Superman, Fantastic Four, Wonder Woman, X-Men, or as a response to a cultural phenomenon or trend, such as the character we are exploring today, Iron Fist. And I am so happy to be joined by fellow kid, JJ. JJ, how are you? Oh, I am doing awesome. I have been practicing my katas and focusing my inner chi to get ready for this origin delve outstanding outstanding i loved it when we first saw the results of our poll that we did in june for determining who would be the character of the month here for july and iron fist came up I know there was a shout of excitement from the both of us and an immediate reach out by using hey let's team up so in the spirit of Power Man and Iron Fist, JJ and I are teaming up and going to bring you the origin of Iron Fist here in a two-parter, folks. Yes, in part one, we're going to profile Marvel premiere, the first appearance of Iron Fist in issue number 15 from May 1974. And in part two, we will be delving into the deadly hands of Kung Fu, issue number 10 from March of 1975. So let's engage in a little creative chatter and get to know the creators of Iron Fist. The creators of Iron Fist were a dynamic duo. First, our writer, Roy Thomas. We have profiled Roy so many times. As a matter of fact, JJ, I almost feel that Roy Thomas was one of the big influences of my childhood. Everything from Star Wars comics to Conan to you name it. It's just an absolute comics luminary. Of course, Thomas was an alumnus of both Marvel and its biggest rival, the distinguished competition, DC Comics. He was editor-in-chief of Marvel, the first one to succeed Stan Lee from 1972 to 1974. He was first hired onto Marvel Comics as a staff writer and worked on such titles as Doctor Strange, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, X-Men, and The Avengers. The later, from 1966 until 1972. In 1981, Thomas left Marvel and joined up with DC Comics, taking on such big names as the Justice Society of America and the creation of the All-Star Squadron series. Having grown up in the same era that you did, it's amazing how many of the same touch points that we had. And when you go back and look at 
who were the key individuals that took part in some of the things that were so important to us as youngsters. Seeing that thread, that common thread come through is pretty amazing. I, at the time, I don't think I ever looked at who was the editor, who was the writer. To me, if I looked at anything, I was looking at the artist. But now I have a much greater appreciation for that. And Roy Thomas's influences in the genre is just absolutely amazing. Well said, JJ. Matter of fact, you just spoke for the both of us because I have nothing more to add as that really conveys same feelings too. So our artist and collaborator in the birthing of Iron Fist here is none other than Gil Kane. Gil Kane was born Eli Katz in Latvia in 1926. He worked under the name Gil Kane and in a few instances, Scott Edwards. He was a comic book artist whose career spanned the 1940s, so golden age folks, to the 1990s and every major comics company and character. Kane co-created the modern-day versions of the superheroes Green Lantern and the Atom for DC Comics, co-created Iron Fist here with Roy Thomas for Marvel. He was involved in such major storylines as a groundbreaking arc in The Amazing Spider-Man, issues 96 through 98, May to July 1971. That, at the behest of the United States Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, bucked the then-prevalent Comics Code Authority to depict drug abuse and ultimately spurred an update of the Comics Code. Kane additionally pioneered an early graphic novel prototype. His name is Savage in 1968 and a seminal graphic novel, Blackmark, in 1971. In 1997, he was inducted into both the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame and the Harvey Award Jack Kirby Hall of Fame. Kane is absolutely a luminary in the comics industry. I don't know that we can say enough about him. The fact that he was involved in so many different and varied superheroes and creative projects really speaks to his ability as an artist. We've talked in another episode about the Comics Code Authority and what a big impact that was on the type of stories that was told. So again, to be involved in something as shocking for the day as being able to say, we're not going to submit the issues to the Comic Code Authority so that we can talk about drug abuse. And this is extremely important. And, you know, being able to, to be part of that, you know, speaks to his ability to portray things in sensitive material in a way that could be maybe more easily conveyed or understood to a younger audience. Indeed, indeed. And again, well summarized with regard to Gil Kane's impact here. Folks, this bio truly just scratches the surface, and he is worthy of a multi-part series as far as profiling his prolific career. But I just wanted to give you a flavor and taste of who we're working with here, two major luminaries in both Thomas and Kane coming together in response to an amazing craze and cultural phenomenon that happens in the 1970s, the martial arts kung fu craze and with that said let's swing it over to you jj for a little comics archaeology and see what gems you've brought to us today i said that good man 
Comics have you done there? Comics Archaeology. Thank you. And since we're making this a two-parter, I think we're going to take this opportunity to look at the influences through two different lenses. In this first one, we're going to look at some of the literary influences and inspirations into the origin of Iron Fist. And one of the first key influences has to do with the setting of Iron Fist's origin, and that is Kunlun. Now, Kunlun is one of the longest mountain chains in Asia. So this is a real-world location. And like many of the settings for the Marvel comics, they wanted to ground this in a real-world location. But the city itself that we're referring to when we talk about Kunlun is a mystical city. And that city in the Marvel Universe is a stand-in for Shangri-La. And Shangri-La comes to us from the 1933 novel Lost Horizon, by James Hilton. Now, Hilton's book was published in 1933, as I said, and it caught the public attention only after his Goodbye Mr. Chips was published in 34. Because of its popularity, in 1939, it was published in paperback form as pocketbook number one. Now, what makes this so revolutionary and important is that this was the first mass market paperback. And the idea of this was to allow people with modest incomes to not only own the books that they otherwise couldn't afford, but also slip it the paperback into their pocket so that they could go off and read it whenever they had the opportunity, hence the name Pocketbook. Wow. Okay, so here we have Thomas and Kane tapping into something now that was already planted into the collective consciousness of this readership, already Shangri-La out there known, a common reference point. Again, very typical of Marvel. Marvel making the majority of their series geographically located in New York City. Well, wait a second. Let's connect with the readers. Readers are familiar with Shangri-La. We're going to do something that is more Asian-centered, influenced. So therefore, let's go with this and work off of that trope. Brilliant. Exactly. And the location dovetails perfectly into the second piece, which is the actual origin itself. And for this, we need to go back to the golden age of comics to Amazing Man number five. And in fact, Iron Fist's origin is heavily influenced by the golden age character Amazing Man, who's credited as being created by Bill Everett, artist and writer of the Golden Age, just one of the many famous authors and illustrators of that time. In fact, in this issue that we're reviewing right now, in the final panel of that issue, there is a dedication to Everett as an amazing man, quote and unquote. This is Roy's homage to that golden age character wow what an amazing amazing number one easter egg to kind of leave there at the end of that premiere issue for folks to find and it survived throughout the ages here 
And the fact that, JJ, I'll give you credit here, you keyed in on that. Great. And I, I loved going back and subsequently reading Amazing Man and making that connection here with regard to this inspiration. Right. There are a lot of differences between the two characters, but we're focusing just on the origin portion. And it is it is quite amazing, pun intended, to see the, the similarities here. Because Amazing Man set this stage for Iron Fist. So Amazing Man is a Caucasian orphan boy who was raised by Tibetan monks and trained in their fighting style. Now, this trope of characters either traveling or being from the Far East and returning with fantastical and powerful secrets has been used before, especially by the Pulp Age character, The Shadow, and Marvel's own Doctor Strange. You know, th this is a great bit to point out here. Because, folks, when you put things in their historical context, I think you can get a better understanding with regard to intent. And these characters here, particularly Doctor Strange and also Iron Fist, have been accused of, in the more modern age here, of some cultural appropriation. I just want to plant that seed as we continue our discussion here of the origin of Iron Fist. Because when I started reading these as a kid, through a child's eye, this only looked like reverential treatment to me. So therefore, there was just an embracing of how cool these characters were. But I think with a more mature eye, you can begin to see the nuances involved here and how others may respond differently to these characters, particularly in their dated origin stories. That's a great point to bring up. And our intent here is not to offend, but to look at these heroes, these characters in that sense of what was happening at the time, what were the influences, and looking at it from a more historical or influential perspective. So the last piece we have here is the actual background as far as from the Marvel perspective to its origin. And thankfully here, we do have some of Roy Thomas's own words. And I'm going to read through this to kind of give you a sense in his voice of what was happening at the time. So Roy Thomas says, what I remember is I wasn't that enthusiastic about the Kung Fu type stuff, but one of the first couple of movies that was released in Kung Fu, this is before anything by Bruce Lee, I think, had some sort of iron fist, the ceremony of the iron fist or something in some movie that I went to see with my first wife, Jean, one night on the Upper East Side in New York. This would have been the early 70s. And what he's referring to here is what was released by Warner Brothers under the name The Five Fingers of Death or its original title, King Boxer. Roy goes on to say, I think by that time, I'd already approved and gotten Stan to approve the Master of Kung Fu thing that Steve Englehart and Jim Starlin had created. I contributed to that by having them add Fu Manchu and a couple of other little things. When I saw this movie, there was a ceremony of the Iron Fist in there, and I thought, gee... We did have Iron Man as a character, and originally Stan and I both agreed that it's good not to have too many characters with similar names if you can avoid it, so I don't know why I didn't suggest Steel Fist or something else. But I remember telling my wife as we walked a couple of blocks back to the apartment, I think maybe there's a character in there. 
I'd like to see a little more of a superhero approach to Kung Fu in our comics, as opposed to just Master of Kung Fu. Nice as that was, I went to Stan the next day. I was, it was like a two-second sell. I mentioned the name, and it would be more of a superhero approach. He said, great, and that was it. That was his creative contribution, and it's a good one because I knew that he was the publisher. I was the editor-in-chief at that stage. So here we've got him talking about what he saw in the culture of the time, and we're going to come back to this more in part two, but I think this is an important note that he took that inspiration and looked at it in terms of, well, what's going on in the Marvel Universe as well. Indeed, and the fact that it was a quote-unquote two-second sell to Stan also is very telling of Stan's always having his finger on the pulse, at least at this stage of his career, basically running hot, coming out of the Silver Age, transitioning into this Bronze Age here, and being the publisher and beginning that persona of Stan Lee Presents. So I cannot help but think, as publisher, he was so in tune with the times and what was trending, specifically with his kung fu craze. Absolutely. And we've talked about it before. He really, Stan Lee, looked at what was going on, what was popular. Is there a way that we can tap into that zeitgeist and create characters and stories that build upon those genre and ideas that everybody seems to be so interested in. Roy goes on to talk about how Gil Kane came to be chosen as the artist. In his words again, I immediately called my friend and one of my favorite artists, Gil Kane, who was always fond of saying he was never anybody's first choice for something. But on certain things, and Iron Fist was one of them, he was the first person I thought of. More than, say, John Buscema or one of the other artists, I felt Gil would have just the right feel for a kung fu type hero, which is different from the other kind of weightlifter characters that so many of the Marvel heroes are. This guy was not to be a muscle man, strong as he might be. At least by comic book standards, he was not Thor or the Hulk, so I got permission. All I had was the name and the fact that I wanted him to be a costumed hero, as opposed to just being an action hero the way the others were. I'd make him different. That was more of my interest anyway, so I got together with Gil with very little in mind in the way of actual story, except that he'd be a superhero. Nice take. Nice take. So not only building off of what they currently had in the action heroes that existed at the time, which we'll get into here a little later, but now the transformation to a kung fu superhero blending what marvel had essentially birthed in the silver age with regard to their marvel superheroes coming into their own but now capitalizing on this trend and saying okay not only can guys that are street fighting but now we can put this character in a costume give him some supernatural abilities and go from there yes yeah i do want to close out this section by talking about the fact that although gil kane only actually drew the first 
appearance of Iron Fist in Marvel Premiere number 15. He did go on to draw many of the covers, not only in Marvel Premiere, but when once Iron Fist got his own title as well. That is great to point out to have keep his legacy going in being that originator creator of the character is very important. So I'm happy to see that he did come back and provide his artwork, which is absolutely gorgeous, which we'll break down here once we get into our exploration discussion segment and continued the legacy as where I believe Roy mentioned that after he got done with this, he was pretty much hands off because he was being overwhelmed as now being editor there at Marvel. JJ, those were some amazing gems that you covered there through your comics archaeology. Why don't we transition now into our exploration and discussion of the Fury of Iron Fist, Marvel premiere, number 15. In the realm of Kunlung, Daniel Rand, Iron Fist, has finished a match of his fighting skill before his master and the Dragon Kings. After the fight, Daniel asks to be allowed to challenge for the one. Before allowing him to do so, Young T asks Danny, think about himself and his past. And so Daniel reflects on the events that brought him to where he is now. So JJ, here we go again. In media res, <laughs> this is where we start and we're into flashback phase to begin this issue. Any reflections on this opening sequence? I think it's a great idea. You start in the middle of the action. Danny Rand is battling several. He's performing the challenge of the many. He has to battle several opponents all at once and defeat them. At this point, we don't know why. He's just going through some sort of challenge. We have this hooded figure of UT and these other masked figures known as the Dragon Kings watching from their perch above the battlefield or battle arena. And it really creates a sense of mystique and mystery. It really gets you involved like, hey, what the heck's going on here? But you don't get a chance to catch your breath because you're right into the action with lightning strikes and monkey punches and and all the action that that is so prevalent in the kung fu genre indeed indeed and from this opening sequence we then flash back and we see danny's father wendell who was originally from kung long wait a second here i start shaking my head because the drawings of the Rand family all appear to be Caucasian. So how did Wendell originally come from Kung Lung? His mother, Heather, and his father's business partner, Meacham, Harold Meacham, they land and are snowshoeing their way through Kung Lung, which apparently Kung Lung, again, going back to the Shangri-La myth, appears on Earth only every 10 years. Along this mountainous and frozen passage, Meacham betrays Wendell. Wendell slips, but saving young Danny. And when asking Meacham for help, Meacham knocks Wendell off the side of the cliff to his death in the hopes that he can take full control then of their company that they have together, which is Rand Meacham. He then left Heather and young Danny behind to either live or die in the snowy mountains. This is pretty chilling when you're thinking about it from the perspective of a young Danny Rand 
snowshoeing through the Himalayan mountains on some bizarre trek being led there by your dad and doing this with your mom. And it's actually his slip which causes his father to tumble. So he and his mom tumbled down the ridge. His dad tries to save him, and now he's hanging by one hand on this icy ridge. And then we get to see um, Meacham really show his true colors. And using his spiked boots, he's stepping on Wendell's hand, causing him to fall to his death. And that's when we find out that the reason, not only to take over for the company, but one of his motivations for doing this is his love for Heather. Of course, she can't fathom this and begins throwing stones at Meacham. And it's at that point that he turns and leaves them both to die in the wastes of the snowy mountains of the Himalayas. Yeah, which, you know, that's an interesting sequence right there, because you don't don't know if Meacham's declaration of love is actual lip service or sincere, particularly in the fact that he just leaves them to die. <laughs> it was no, mind you, she does pelt him with rocks, which can cause him to be turned off by that and leave. But that was an interesting little exchange there. And I don't know as a reader if I particularly bought that, but it was interesting nonetheless to set up this possible love triangle sequence here or unrequited love, if you will, from Meacham towards Heather. So transitioning from this and this recollection done, we come back to UT agreeing to begin the challenge of in which Danny has to fight Shuhu. During the fight, Danny continues to reflect back on the events which brought him to Kung Long. Now he and his mother are being chased to the gates of the city by a pack of wolves. And his mother decides, since they can't outrun the wolves, to sacrifice herself. Literally let herself get captured by these wolves, feast on her, so her son can safely make it to the gates of the city. And it's a it's chilling enough that Danny loses his father, but then also loses his mother in very short order. Shades of, you know, the origin of Batman with a young Bruce Wayne losing both of his parents in a tragic way and how big of an impact that has on the character's psyche, which pushes, will eventually see to the point of seeking vengeance on the man, Meacham, who put them in this situation, who caused them to lose their lives. Exactly. And now, folks, we have doubled down on parents sacrificing for their son. First, Wendell catching Danny after he had slept. And now, Danny's mother, Heather offering herself up, fueling that fire, JJ, that you just brought up, of vengeance, because I am not going to allow my parents' sacrifice to have been in vain. So we then transition to Danny proving to be powerful and gaining the upper hand in his fight. His kung fu quickly turns the tide, and he summons the strength of his iron fist and uses it against Shu Hu, and defeats him. To his surprise, Shuhu turned out to be nothing more than a robot. <laughs> With the challenge done, UT allows Danny to choose between immortality or ultimately what he perceives as being death, meaning, Danny, you can go ahead and walk away from here and pursue your course of vengeance 
you're espousing you wish to do. Absolutely. And we don't understand the whole thing at this point because this is the cliffhanger. He's past both of the challenges and what remains to be seen is what choice will Iron Fist or Danny Rand make. And that's the cliffhanger that sets us up for the next issue of Marvel Premiere. I think it's an interesting twist to have Shu Hu be a robot, which points to something amazing. The city not only is a city that, you know, only makes contact with the mortal realm once every 10 years there's some mystical elements but hey they've got some advanced technology and can create lifelike fighting robots as well yeah that was wild i <laughs> i have to say when going back and reading this origin story i i first scratched my head and then i went oh, okay and and the reason i, I went okay is that jj when we were growing up the lines were so blurred between fantasy and science fiction. And this is a prime example of that intersection coming together and actually working in this instance. And so I had to kind of scrape the cobwebs off of the segmented or siloed 80s and 90s separating sci-fi from fantasy, go back to those you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s roots where they blended so seamlessly together and say, you know what? This works. You know, good job here. And going back to my younger self and reliving that experience through reading these stories again, I didn't bat an eye at it. There was something just cool about, wow, it was a robot. No wonder it was so tough. And, oh, was it a rigged fight because it was a robot? Was he never meant to be able to survive this battle? Yeah, I didn't think anything about those lines. And I think comics of that age did that so well. They just really blurred the lines between reality and fantasy and science fiction. It was all just a fertile field to pull inspiration from all these different places. Indeed, indeed. JJ, did you have some additional reflections on the characters in this read? Well, we've already talked about Harold Meacham and how he has become Danny's focus for vengeance and how Meacham claimed to love Heather Rand, and that was one of his reasons for killing Wendell. Even as such, he he's kind of relegated as a, a spark that ignites the flame of vengeance within Danny and doesn't really get much more treatment than that in this issue. And maybe a little bit more in following issues, but really he's just there to act as that inciting event. Now I want to go back to Amazing Man and pull in a, a mirror here in that the hooded figure of UT is a mirror to Amazing Man's mentor, Nika, one of the hooded Council of Seven. And it's the Council of Seven that's putting Amazing Man through all of these trials before he leaves their monastery. And again, it's taking some of that inspiration from the original story of Amazing Man and putting a slight spin on it to make it work inside this new context that they're creating with this mystical realm of Kunlun and the place that it has in the Marvel Universe. Now, I remember reading Roy Thomas reflecting further on Amazing Man's influence 
on Iron Fist and saying that by the time they were creating Iron Fist, Amazing Man had essentially become public domain as far as the story was concerned. And the fact that he had a very good relationship with Amazing Man's creator. The fact that so much of this was pulled and just applied to Iron Fist with some changing of names, he said that Bill Everett would have highly approved because he maintained the integrity of the storyline, but then just applied it to this new character. And he felt that had Bill survived, because I believe he passed away in 73, if he had survived to have seen this issue, would have applauded it and thanked Thomas for perpetuating his legacy now through Iron Fist. And also why I believe we get the nod at the end of this to Bill. I think that Roy even goes a step further in his admiration and wanting to immortalize Bill Everett for his efforts in the comic industry. Later, during his time at DC, when he was working on Justice Society, he creates a character called Amazing Man. Now, this was an African-American character whose real identity was Will Everett. Now, the powers were totally different. The origin is different. But this was, I think, another nod by Roy Thomas to immortalize Bill Everett in the history of comics okay i just learned something right there see folks this is why we've got jj <laughs> thank you jj that is cool i love that wow wow so overall story impressions on this one i thoroughly enjoyed this origin story i think it sets up the character well you've got a compelling protagonist in meacham and someone that danny can focus in his vengeance on allows him to reach back to where he had come from eventually and enter him into the greater Marvel universe because the path will lead back to none other than New York. And there, of course, he's going to have the opportunity to cross paths with just about anybody that they want in the Marvel universe. Very true. Very true. Now, JJ, I believe you had touched on we both have now Danny Rand's burning desire for revenge, the parallels and between Amazing Man and Danny putting put through these trials. The flashbacks, I think we're both in agreement, are very effective in telling an origin story, but also keeping the action going. Let's get into Gil Kane's art. I loved it. I could not agree with Roy Thomas Moore that after witnessing this and then going into our next read in part two in the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, Gil really set the tone. And I just love the action sequences here. So I think the key in looking at Gil's art is manifold, and we could spend so much time talking about this, but I want to focus on a couple things. I want to talk about how he uses size of panels as emphasis. Anything that has a heavy emotional impact tends to get a much larger panel size. When Danny's father falls to his death, it's a full page panel. When you're seeing their reaction, 
Heather and Danny's reaction to the death. There's only three panels to that page. One, an extreme close-up of mother and son, and the other two of first a medium shot of Meacham standing over them, kind of gloating, kind of the typical villain monologue. But then a close-up as he gets hit in the face by a rock thrown by Heather. The use of the close-up to really portray the emotion on their faces is absolutely amazing. And I think while he does a superb job in and of himself, I think that we should really mention the fact that the inker on this issue is none other than Dick Giordano who's a prolific and lauded comic book artist in his own right. Yeah, I mean, this is an all-star cast producing this first issue. Amazing. Yeah, his inks just add a level of crisp realism to the story, helping to ground the battles in the real world. So that brings me back to the second point, is the fluidity of motion. And it's so hard to capture in comics, which is a static medium, the energy, the dynamic tension, the motion and energy in these characters. But honestly, Gil and Dick make it absolutely effortless. And you really feel like you're watching a kung fu film as you're reading through these passages. They flow, they're dynamic, and they're easy to read. And that's the second thing that I think Gil and also Dick with his inks brings to this story. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I think Dick and Gil in the fight sequences are amazing. Just absolutely amazing with the sweeping action and changing of the reader's point of view. But I think the greatest use and change of point of view is taking Wendell's point of view, looking up at Meacham and seeing the spikes from the boots and coming down on Wendell's hand. That just absolutely drew me in going, man, who is this bastard Meacham? They just ate elicited a an emotional response out of me as a reader and was highly effective. I I loved those sweeping changing points of views, even some of the overhead shots of them coming up the mountain as they're making their way and then just changing those points of view were highly effective. And never was I bored as a reader. It was keeping me on my toes and was highly effective. I think this is important to bring out in that this is a comic that was submitted to and released under the Comic Code Authority. And as such, we've talked about before, they couldn't display overt, gory violence. And the scene you're talking about with these spiked snowshoes and the, the tension of it hovering over Wendell's hand is incredible. They don't show you him actually stomping on the hand, but you get to see the reaction in Wendell's face as that's happening off panel. And it's, it's a testament to their ability to portray that without being overtly gory or sensational in their approach to that. Yeah, they truly leave what's not on the panel, but what is implied through the panel 
to the reader's mind to fill in the blanks. And I go back to Jaws. And anytime you saw the attack sequences and just the action that was left up to the viewer's mind to dream, what in the world is this monster doing to these people in this community? And when you then finally get to the reveal of Bruce the shark, it's kind of a letdown because my mind went to places that couldn't at that time be properly depicted through film. So I have always found it very effective from an artistic standpoint where the writer and artist lead you down a certain path, but don't do the full reveal. Leave something up to the reader, the viewer's mind to dream of what hideous thing has just happened, what's been done. So I, again, go back to Gil and Dick's depictions here. They do a great job of that in this one. And that brings me to my third point in one of the key areas that makes us such a masterpiece from the artistic perspective, and that's Gil's use of and depiction of hands. We have the hand of Wendell clutching the clutching the ridge for his life but then every combat sequence the hands are subtly different the stances and the katas that they're working through with the hands and the fists and no two portrayals of the hands are the same and i think there's a certain shorthand that tends to creep into some comic book art where all hands are drawn exactly the same they kind of look like a mitten or they just kind of look like a big club for a fist and even when they form a fist the way the knuckles protrude or if the foreknuckle or the second knuckle are more prominent in the way that the hand is held it's i think it just lends to the beauty in the combat sequences and just adds that additional level of detail that really sends this one out of the park. Great points. Great points. Indeed. Indeed. So, JJ, are there any other general impressions coming off of this origin story that you have? And who, by the way, would you recommend read this? What what audience do you feel would latch on to this particular origin story? Well, I'm going to answer your second question first and say that I would definitely recommend this for teens and up because the focus of the issue and the genre really is violence. And so I would say teens and up is the best audience for this. There are some implications of violence that go above and beyond you know you have wendell's death you have heather's death at the at the jaws of the hungry wolves and there's actually a scene that i want to pull out which is another nod to the amazing man origin in which danny is struck in the shoulder by a knife which appears to come out of the palm of Shu Hu, which is your first indication, hey, there's something weird about this because it doesn't look mystical. It doesn't look like he threw it. It looks like it actually shot out of his hand. But the point I want to make with this is this being struck in the shoulder is a direct callback to a similar scene in one of the tests of Amazing Man where he had to withstand pain. And the way he showed that was by withstanding a knife getting thrown at him and getting struck in the shoulder. One of two knives that struck him. But to call back that so 
explicitly in that detail was just a nice tip of the hat to, again, the origin of Amazing Man. Yes, and JJ, after you had brought that origin story of Amazing Man to me and having read that too, it, it was a fantastic tip of the hat there. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And I agree with you wholeheartedly to audience. It's definitely a teen and up. It is also for folks who love martial arts, enjoy everything and anything that came out of that kung fu craze from the 70s, and even in, in modern day too. And if you just enjoy a superhero origin story, this one is unique for sure and really packs a punch with respect to action and an earnest telling of a story rooted in some moral conflict, setting the stage for vengeance, as you said before. And if you enjoy the journey, because this one really is setting up character journey, then I think this one would be for you. Before we close, I want to kind of bookend this by what you talked about at the beginning. This is only part one. We've really only tackled one aspect of the origin of Iron Fist. We haven't even talked about his namesake. What does that mean, Iron Fist? And that's going to be coming up in our part two. So definitely be on the lookout for that. And JJ, thank you for teasing our audience. Yes, folks, please hang in there and join us for part two, where we will delve into the deadly hands of Kung Fu number 10 and the continuation of our Iron Fist origins here on Kirby's Kids. He challenged champions in a deadly sport that turned brave men into killers. 